you talk about the CIA and American foreign policy during the Cold War, that's like level one. We're like on a second level here. Like the IMF and World Bank are operating on a meta level. Like we're above Cold War politics. We're at the level of timeless, strong countries abusing poor countries. This is way beyond the Cold War. Hello, hello. How are you all? How you all doing? You having a good week? I just want to say a massive thank you to everyone who's been emailing me over the last couple of weeks. That's really... Uh, incredible emails people coming through telling me how much they're enjoying the show at the moment so i do want to give a massive shout out to the team who works on the podcast because it's because of them that we managed to produce such an amazing show especially my producer danny who absolutely crushes it he's been working with me i think for i think it's about three years now and he pretty much runs the show in the background so a big shout out to him a big shout out to ben on the production neil big shout out to him for all the research he does everything emma does with helping arranging all our trips i just want to say a massive thanks to the team and also thanks to you for supporting the show anyway welcome to the what bitcoin did podcast which is brought to you by gemini the only place i'm using for buying bitcoin i'm your host peter mccormack and today i've got an absolute banger of a show i've got my good friend alex gladstein back on the podcast. We've made so many shows. Alex is a prolific writer, not only the articles he puts together, but also his book, Check Your Financial Privilege, which if you haven't read, please do go and check out. So about a month ago, I was out for dinner with Alex in London, and he let me in on a research piece he was working on all about the IMF and the World Bank. And it was absolutely fascinating. So I said to him, I'm coming out to LA soon. I know you're going to be there. Let's get together and let's make a show about this. And it's mind-blowing stuff. Actually, it's also, frankly, depressing. Um, I've heard little bits here or there about the IMF and the World Bank and how they are rotten institutions. But to have Alex break down exactly what they do, how they do it, and the impact this has was extremely valuable to me. And I think the work Alex done here is ex- unbelievably important. I'm just not sure personally what to do with it. I kind of, like I said, it's quite depressing some of this. But listen, have a listen to the show. Let me know what you think. Please do get in touch. Feel free to reach out to me. I do want to hear you about this. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com and I will get back to you. Also, Alex's full paper was released this morning on Bitcoin Magazine and you can find that linked in the show notes. So definitely go and check that out. Okay, on to the show, on to Alex. Yes, please do get back to me. Let me know what you think. Morning, Alex. Good morning, Peter. How you doing? I'm great, thank you. Good to see you again. Yeah, here in beautiful Los Angeles. It is. Uh, okay, um, I've sat down with you in London recently. We um, caught up. You told me you've been working on a new article, um, something that is going to expose a part of the global financial system, how the IMF, the World Bank, uh, essentially... Well, look, you get into it. Tell me, tell me about this article you're working on. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for giving me the opportunity to come on here. Um, I've been down the rabbit hole of the IMF and the World Bank for the last few months. It's um, pretty dark, I'm not going to lie. I've learned a lot. I've been shocked, appalled, outraged, um, depressed, um, and inspired. That's kind of my my journey. Um, I think that people in the Bitcoin community at least have this idea that the World Bank and IMF are, are up to no good. They have this rough idea. Most people, however, don't really know anything about the IMF. They're like, oh, three-letter, you know, acronym, organization, like the UN, whatever. And maybe they assign it as like a neutral in their mind. And a lot of people have positive uh, thoughts about the World Bank. They're like, oh, it like fights poverty in poor countries, right? Um, 
So in that sense, I think the Bitcoiners are onto something. And in my work over the last few years, I, I've just kind of, I've kind of encountered here or there. I, I realized that the IMF was involved in like the monetary colonialism in West Africa. I, I of course had heard about the kind of economic hitman stuff in pop culture, right? I didn't know how seriously to take those accusations. So I decided to just start learning about the IMF and World Bank. And I, I discovered that there, there aren't a whole lot of books um, that cover this topic. It's a little bit buried. Um, so I really had to dig around, go find things that were written in the 1970s and the 80s and the 90s. And, and, there, and, and in there, you really find some incredible analysis and stuff that really blew me away. For whatever reason, in the last couple decades, people have largely stop thinking about the World Bank and IMF in a critical way. Like the debate has faded from the discourse. Back in the 90s, there were huge protests. There were tons of books written in 1994, which was the 50th, 50th anniversary of the bank and the fund. But I don't know, man, it's like, it's like they've faded from our public consciousness. So I hope today's episode can help people um, reorient them back to the center of our consciousness, which is really where they should be given their role in the world, what they've done and what they continue to do. How closely do they work together? How interlinked are they? Or should we, if we want to explain what they are, should we separate them, explain each individual? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, they are close together. Uh, physically, they're both based in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C., which tells you about something about who controls them. Um, and the two buildings that, that they are housed in are connected like Siamese twins with different tunnels uh, and, and uh, corridors that connect the two buildings. So that, for example, people can sit on the board of, of both institutions. Basically, they're extremely close. Um, the institutions travel to developing countries together. They create reports together. People will be hired at one, move to the other. Traditionally, the bank is headed by an American and the IMF is headed by a European. That's kind of tradition. Um, but in general, the institutions are quite close, but they, they serve very different roles. Um, so we can get into that. The, the general idea is that in 44, as listeners of your show probably know by now, uh, the modern financial system was created in, in New Hampshire at a hotel um, at Bretton Woods. And two really key parts of the modern financial system are the World Bank and the IMF. Now, originally, they were created to help rebuild Europe and Japan after World War II. That was like the original idea. The bank was a development bank. So the bank was supposed to give out loans to, to rebuild infrastructure. The IMF was supposed to address balance of payments concerns. So when a country would, would start to have um, uh, like basically an, an exports crisis, like basically when, when, when their, their imports started to become much higher than their exports, um, and they couldn't pay their invoices, they couldn't import things, they couldn't pay debt back. The IMF existed as an institution to help address that. So originally they had these two kind of <clears throat> very different roles. And in the first decade, they largely focused their funding on, on Europe and on a handful of like more, more modernized, industrialized developing countries like Turkey, for example. Um, after like the mid fifties, Europe was like back on its feet and Japan was like crushing it. Okay. The, the, these economies were clearly kind of, they found their step again and they were leading the world again. So the bank and funds energies were directed towards the developing world. And that's where we're going to. So they were created with good intention and relatively successful early on in rebuilding or supporting the rebuild of Europe and Japan. I think it's fair to say that initially their, the intention was good. Yes, like they, 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 they were built to 
prevent what happened essentially in the 1930s, which was like the world had broken apart. No one trusted each other. Uh, there was like competitive currency devaluation. Um, so the bank and the fund were created to, to create international economic stability. Unfortunately, that is the opposite of what they've done in, in, in their history. And that is a result of their actions in the developing world. And just before we get into the details of this, the, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, both based in Washington. Yeah, um, exactly. What is the governance structure of these sure. organizations and how are they funded? Yeah, so basically, like, there are creditors who deposit funds at the bank and the fund. Um, the main five creditors historically have been the United States, Japan, the United Kingdom, Germany, and France. So I'll, the former big empires, right? Yeah. Today, uh, it, things changed over time, but historically, the United States has held a veto power. So to make big, big changes at, the inst at these institutions, you basically needed 85% of, of the vote, let's say. So the U.S. has always held more than 15%. More than, more than 15 so the U.S. can like veto any big change by itself. And to do like individual loan decisions, you need like a majority vote. And if you add the U.S.'s vote share with all of its allies, it's, it's more than half. So the U.S. has always been able to like basically control these institutions. Um, and again, like the way it works is that member countries um, join the fund as a, as a precondition to get access to the bank. So if you want to be, if you want to take out a loan from the World Bank, you have to be part of the IMF. It's kind of like a, a way they kind of, uh, <laughs> they sort of screwed developing, developing countries. Like the, the ones that really wanted the loan from the bank had to join the fund. Okay. It's a precondition. So there are, every member of the bank is also a member of the fund. And again, the general idea is like you join the fund, you give, you, you deposit some money in, and then if your country goes into a crisis, you can draw from the pool um, in different what they call tranches, basically, um, and, you know, at, at different prices. Like, like obviously, the loans get more expensive, the, the riskier things get. Right. That was the original design. Um, the fund is, rather, the, the bank is, is, again, a development bank. It's like there will be a specific project, like a hydroelectric dam in a particular country that the bank will come in and fund. Now, the, the, the bank also works very kind of multilaterally. Like the bank will often like lead around with the, the government in question. Like say it's like Indonesia. So the Indonesian government will throw in some money. The World Bank will throw in some money. And, the, and then the World Bank will find a bunch of other people to throw in money. So they often act as like the deal maker for some of these big projects. The IMF is, is more singular. Like the IMF will come in and just give a, a, a big chunk. Um, and then it will kind of disperse the funds as it sees progress in the country. These are called like standby agreements. So in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, like a country would have a crisis, the IMF would come to terms with the government, and then they would have this like agreement, which is basically like a credit line, that they would the, the sovereign government would start to draw down that credit line, uh, and the IMF would continue to provide that so long as they saw progress. But what is progress yeah is that is that specific uh political goals that they would like to see yeah so the best way i could put it and it's 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 i've been struggling to frame it the right way but basically around the end of the 50s early 60s you had two main things happen in in the context of our conversation you had again you had europe and japan kind of get back on their feet and and become 
kind of mighty again, right? With their, with their economies, their industries. They recovered from the wreckage of World War II. And then you had decolonization, right? So you had all the empires pulling away from their former uh, colonies. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1960s kind of like the, known as like the end of colonialism, right? Some, some of the colonial empires fell away in the 50s, some fell away after 1960, but basically 1960s sort of supposed to mark the end of colonialism. So what, what, what my thesis is, is that the World Bank and IMF were created to help stabilize and sort of like, let's say, rebuild Europe and, and, and Japan. And once that was done, unfortunately, they were repurposed to extract resources and cheap labor um, from the developing world. Like uh, swapping territorial colonialism with financial colonialism. Yeah, in the same way that um, when I write about the the monetary colonialism in in West Africa, the French pulled away politically. Like they no longer controlled, like French West Africa didn't exist anymore. It was like sovereign nations, but they still controlled the money, right? So we, we went from like political colonialism to economic colonialism. So I guess what I would argue is that Post-1960, the bank and the fund um, allowed the former imperial powers to continue like this colonial dynamic of of draining resources from poor countries to support them. And that is, of course, the total opposite of what they say they do. But is is this just down to uh, technical innovation, financial innovation? They're essentially doing the same thing. I mean, political colonialism was really by virtue of being built out of years of ships traveling the world and, and draining the resources and bringing them back. But we get, we've, you know, we've evolved, we've evolved te- you know, technologically. You don't actually need to have yeah, ships you, and people there. Right. So the, they're strikingly similar to some of the dynamics of like old school mercantilist colonialism, except yeah. without, without the violence, like the IMF doesn't have guns. So whereas the British or the French or the Americans in the Philippines would go and impose a system where they're like, we're going to take the gold from here. We're going to, you're going to work and help us get this rubber from over here. And we're going to take it home. And, you know, we're not going to pay you a fair rate, if anything. You know, that was like old school colonialism or like slavery or whatever. This doesn't entail violence. This uses debt as a weapon. So instead of a gun, you're using debt. That's that's the idea of like what the, the World Bank and the fund do. Right. Okay. So just... Going back to the establishment of, mm-hmm. of the two, uh, originally designed with good intentions. Yes. Um, do you believe their evolution was through malice or was just kind of like more just uh, a, a natural way these things tend to evolve in that the incentive system works that uh, those running the IMF would see a benefit of their own country. Those running the World Bank could see how they could benefit their own country. Yeah, well, I think that the, the, the line between malice and self-interest is, is blurry, right? Yeah. Um, I think that these institutions were transformed into uh, tools which would benefit the wealthy countries um, at the expense of the poor ones. I don't think there was like a single meeting where people sat down and said, we're going to, you know, yeah. we're going to like do, we're going to perpetuate colonialism. No, I don't think that ever happened. But I do think that this was a conscious shift and the leaders of the bank and the fund, I think were quite clear about what they were doing. And the goals over time, I think 
became institutional goals. I don't think the average employee of the bank or the fund understands this. There's kind of that like banality of evil mm. thing, right? Like I, I, I think they think they're doing a good thing. So I think it's a very high up, very zoomed out um, process. But as we'll get into the outcomes of what the bank and fund have done are not arguable. I mean, they're very clear. So what, it is a fair debate, like was the destruction that they've wrought intentional or not? That's up for debate. What's not up for debate is, is the outcome, right? So mm. it is interesting to talk about how much of this was like path dependency, right? Like it just sort of, it was a course that was set, you know, and maybe they didn't have a choice. Maybe these wealthy countries realized they needed the bank and the fund to do these things to keep our way of life the way it was. I mean, in many ways, what these institutions do is subsidize um, a higher quality of life for people in the West at the expense of people in poor countries. I mean, that's kind of what they do as we'll get into. Um, and maybe that was just a, a decision that was made, you know? And no part of it could be that uh, the intention was there to help support these countries, but the design of the loans was such that there was no chance that these... I don't... It, knowing how the institutions work, I don't think charity was ever the point. No. Okay. I, I think it was self-interest. Now, whether whether harm was 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 the goal is not clear. I mean, I don't think that's clear, but they're certainly not altruistic institutions as we'll get into. And how much separation is there between the institutions themselves and the kind of power lines of government? Uh, I know these institutions are based in DC. I've seen, I've been to DC. It's incredible. Actually, just wandering around DC, the number of institutions you see is incredible. But uh, how much independence do they have from uh, the government? Mm -hmm. Is there independence? Like if those working at the World Bank believe they're doing a good thing, yeah. but those higher up, like what are their incentives? They're not working for a private so, corporation. They're not so going to receive bonuses. There's not a whole lot of independence. So for example, in the 50s, um, people at the secretary of state level in the United States straight up just vetoed bank and fund projects in the Cold War context. So at least in the early years, it was there was very little independence. There was a huge dam that I think the bank and, and the fund wanted to, to finance in, 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 in Egypt. And uh, Dulles, who was, who was, who was um, in the cabinet of the United States, he like so, sort of vetoed it. And, and there are a lot of examples of that early on. And to give another example, the like probably the most important person in either institution in the history of the institutions was, was Robert McNamara who was the head of the World Bank um, in the 1970s. And he kind of transformed the whole way the institutions sort of operate, in my opinion. Um, and if you think about his background, he was the CEO of Ford Motor Company, and then he was the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of Defense of the United States. He sent 500,000 American men to fight in Vietnam. Um, and then he went from there to becoming head of the World Bank. And when he left the World Bank, he joined the board of Royal Dutch Shell. And in the 2000s, the head of the World Bank was Paul Wolfowitz, one of the key architects of the Iraq war. So I think that like the national security industry is very, very closely tied with the bank and fund, more than people would like to admit. And I think that the United States government has enormous power over these institutions, but Europeans have big power as well. And so do the Japanese. As, as I'll explain, the Japanese have essentially used these institutions to like sort of loot the resources of Indonesia. So, I mean, I think these great powers have all used these institutions for their benefit. 
Um, but no, no, no more, no more, uh, no one more so than the United States. Okay. Talk about Japan then. Talk to me. What have they done in Indonesia? Sure. I mean, so I think that in some ways, um, you had Western countries benefit enormously from colonialism, right? I mean, the amount of loot that the British took from India is, is incalculable, right? Um, and that flow of funds started to slow down first after World War I and then, and then, and then, you know, kind of trickled to, to, a, to a halt almost after World War II. Um, some, some say, you know, a lot of people argue, why did we have the Great Depression, right? This is a huge academic argument. And you have like the Keynesians and the Austrians and they argue over, well, is it because we left the gold standard, you know, or is it because we didn't leave it fast enough, right? And that tends to be the like Western argument. I think there's another really good argument too that's related to our conversation that a bunch of Marxists put forward, which I actually think is kind of obvious and I agree with. And I think that one of the major factors in the Great Depression is that Western empire countries lost a massive revenue stream, which was colonialism started to, to wind down after World War I in a big way. Um, and that makes a lot of sense to me. Like that would, yeah, that would lead to like a smaller economy. Yeah. Um, so I think, again, you had this process over time of, of decolon, you know, decolonization. And that was a really big problem for these big industrial countries. Like they had gotten really cheap goods and services for a long, long time. Um, so when, when you look at a country like Japan or France or Britain, they kind of tried to use the World Bank and Fund to accomplish the same things just without sort of violence, right? So in Indonesia, the Japanese would get timber and oil and all kinds of resources for their war machine during World War II and previous to that and when they, when they, when they you know, say colonized Indonesia. So post... Um, independence of these countries. Let's say Indonesia is now like a free country, right? Uh, in, 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 the, in, in the 60s. Um, now Japan can kind of do the same thing just without guns. Like they, they can like offer loans and, and have their companies go into Indonesia and take wood and minerals and different goods and services for the benefit of the Japanese economy, not the Indonesian economy. And that's sort of essentially what happened there. <clears throat> and um, same thing in a lot of Africa and Latin America with respect to uh, the European powers and, and, and to America. So, so basically e each of the major creditors of the bank and the fund kind of like perpetuated the, the resource drain that they, that they had gotten during actual colonialism. They've been able to perpetuate that during uh, through bank and fund policy. And the resource drain, was that uh, resources offered as collateral in, t in case loans weren't repaid or is it straight up swaps? I think that the, it's important to start to, un to start to trace out how, how the bank and fund actually engineer societies, yeah. okay? So what they do is they offer the loan and then, and, and this was very traditional of the IMF um, since inception and, and of the World Bank since, since about 1980, is what they do is they, they basically offer the loan with conditions. It's not just the fact that, and we'll talk about credit, but like, it's not just the fact that they're, they're, they're making a loan, which is perceived as charity by us, 
But then we forget the very simple fact that when you make a loan, the borrower has to pay back principal plus interest. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that they're like benefiting from these countries, right? Um, Like these aren't gifts, these are loans. Often that like back in the 60s and 70s, we're talking six, seven, eight percent interest. And, and they would, the bank and fund would borrow the money from international capital markets and from creditor nations at 5%. And then they would sell the money to poor countries at 8%. Like they, they'd, make, they'd make money off a of spread. They're spread. Yeah, yeah, of course. Like that's how they, they finance themselves, um, which people also don't like to think about. They think these are like, again, charitable gift-giving institutions. This is just not the case. Um, but in any event, like, these loans are given out with conditions upon conditions. This is called structural adjustment. So basically the goal of structural adjustment is to change the society of, of a poor country to make it focus on exports at the expense of consumption. So I'll give you an example. Um, a really good example is, is what I'm gonna lead my, my new essay with that's coming out soon by the time that folks are hearing our interview. Hopefully the essay will be out. And we'll talk about Bangladesh. This is a very poor country. It suffered a lot in the last hundred years, both through natural disaster and human disaster. I mean, the British basically caused a massive famine in Bangladesh during World War II, killed three million people. A lot of people attribute this to Churchill and to Keynes, actually. Um, They suffered again in the 70s. Um, They had another massive famine that the US government was actually part of. the Bangladeshis were selling what's called jute, which makes burlap, like it makes bags, like jute is like a, it's like a fiber um, and it can make bags and sack grain bags, things like that. They were selling that um, to the Cubans and the Soviets. So the US didn't like that very much. And we controlled kind of like the world's wheat production. So they started to have a famine and we like didn't allow the wheat to go in like a million people died, like, and the U.S. was partially responsible for that. So they've had, they've had a lot of um, rough um, crises. They also get hit by these insane cyclones that killed up to a million people at a time. Um, basically the bay that, that the Bangladesh sits at the top of is shaped like a tunnel and the cyclones come in and they just pick up, pick up power and steam and then they just wreck this country, which has a lot of like low-lying, like wet land around it. So it's a poor country um, that had been just devastated over and over again by natural and man-made issues. And you had um, people doing essentially substance farming. Like they, they, they were poor, but they could, they could generally feed themselves. Usually they were growing cattle and rice and things to eat. Okay. But that's not very good for paying debt back, right? So if you have the bank and fund loaning you money for stuff, that government has to find a way to pay the debt back. So the way, the way that it would work is that uh, the bank and the fund would come into these countries and try to structure them so that they could earn more money. Um, and, and they're not a reserve currency nation. They create their own fiat, right? Hold on. So this is yeah. to, this is to encourage them to increase their exports so they could repay the loans. Yes, exactly. So they could pay back debts, even though this might not be structurally good for the country. It's horrible for the country, yeah. as we'll get into. But um, the, 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 it's, it's a very simple idea. Like if Bangladesh wants to buy tractors from Britain or from the United States from the international markets, 
it can't use its own currency because the Bangladeshi currency is not convertible around the world. Hmm. The, the only way it can buy tractors or grain or whatever dollar is by, well, is by borrowing, but, but mainly by, by exporting goods and then they receive hard currency in return. Yeah. So uh, okay. the point of these programs was to make governments like Bangladesh able to export more so they could get more hard currency so they could pay back the loans, which are dollar-denominated de- dollar loans. So is that focusing productivity on producing things that uh, other markets require yes. at the expense of what domestically exactly. they require? Exactly, you've hit the nail so on the head. So you destroy farming? Yeah. Is this kind of what's been happening in Sri Lanka? Well, just to focus on Bangladesh, like the point is they weren't farming the right things for the international markets. So the World right. Bank and, and, and IMF came in and they said, you guys mm. should grow shrimp. Shrimp is very lucrative. Um, there is, there are shrimp that 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 are infinite numbers of shrimp swimming around this this tropical uh, bay that's next to Bangladesh. Um, so the bank said to the Bangladeshi government, which of course was an autocratic government, and and that's kind of such an important thread of this whole story is that almost always the money that was borrowed by these governments was borrowed by a dictator or by an, at least an unaccountable corrupt government. Because it's a lot easier. Exactly. And the incentives are there for them to maintain power. Yeah, like if you're, if you're lending to a democracy with free speech, the people are going to protest against us, the IMF policies because they lead to like horrible social conditions. But also it's, it comes back to, it's, it's even a time preference argument. You've got a dictator, you're offering them a, a whole bunch of money. Oh, they'll they, take, yeah, because they, they don't care steal, about 20 years from yeah, now. And they corrupt and they can steal and they can exactly. have their parties in there. They take 20% off the top. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Drink champagne, smoke cigars. So, yeah, okay. So, so this dictator, these dictators and in, in, these military dictators in Bangladesh are like, okay, yeah, I mean, we'll take the money. We'll make you guys some shrimp. So um, again, this is a society that's been devastated by these cyclones. So they had built these dikes. They hired the Dutch in the 60s to, to build these dikes, these big like dirt like and, and rock um, structures to help prevent the waves from coming in. The waves are, you know, very, very deadly. So because of the like imposition of these new policies, these farmers were now encouraged to take their fields where they, again, they were growing food that they could eat and drill holes in the dikes and fill their fields with salt water and then go into the ocean and catch the young shrimp and then bring the shrimp into their fields and, and, and like basically farm the shrimp there. And then they would like, once the shrimp were ready to eat, um, they would sell it to these like shrimp lords who then give them to the government and then they end up like on our plate in Britain and the United States and Japan. Like we end up eating the shrimp. The key part is that like you're sacrificing local consumption um, for export. So like we're, we're changing the like energy of the nation from creating stuff for it to eat to for us to eat. It's like a subtle insidious form of slavery. It's pretty bad. It's like here is a loan. Well, we, we the way we get you to pay that off is get you to produce things that export. It's a real subtle, yeah, insidious form of slavery. The way that the reason why the Bangladesh example is 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 so powerful is, number one, you start to realize that these loans were made to change societies so that they would feed us in in rich countries or or fuel us in rich countries, um, at the expense of local human rights and and development concerns, um, and that and they're also usually devastating environmental effects. So I guess what I'm talking about. So now you have these cyclones coming in and 
the the defense th- mechanisms which had been built to pr- to protect people were, were were like had holes in them now, so they they were no they were not as nearly as effective anymore, and and what's even more troubling is that traditionally the way that people would be protected by the, the cyclones because you know mother mother nature usually has a plan are the world's largest mangrove forests are there, okay? And um, they're very, very good. Mangrove forests are very, very good at protecting people. So to build the shrimp farms, they cut down, um, I, I don't know what the exact number is today, but, but by the 90s, they had cut down almost half of all the mangrove forests in this region to do shrimp farming. So not only are you like putting holes in the man-made protections, you're also getting rid of the natural protections. So there's like massive deforestation. The leaking of the salt water into the, into the, Farmland has destroyed um, the rivers and any sort of like natural life that lives there because everything's now salt. It's like salt kills, right? Hmm. Um, they've made other farming nearby very unproductive because when you have chickens or cows or you're growing something and there's just a lot of salt in in the general area, it, it, it hurts and kills things. So it's made this whole area much less productive with the exception of making shrimp. And what you have is environmental destruction and you have a reduction of a population that was poor, but at least could feed itself. Now downgrading to a population that's also very poor and needs to go to the market to buy food. So now they're dependent on imports imports from rich countries. This is the whole game. So we make these poor countries focus on exporting raw goods, whether it be oil or gold or cotton or palm oil or tea or coffee or shrimp. Usually, by the way, things no one can eat. If you think about it, it's kind of sinister. Mm. It's usually stuff that you can't eat Um, or it's not meant for them. Like, it's not like these poor Bangladeshis who are making like a dollar a day and work 12 hours a day. And there's enormous amounts of child labor involved in this, by the way. Um, They're not eating the shrimp. No, they're like selling the shrimp. And then they, the individuals, by the way, the serfs, the shrimp serfs, they are taking on debt to change their farm into a shrimp farm. And after a decade, they may not even make all the money back that they owe. So they're in like debt bondage, okay? Meanwhile, the shrimp lords and the government are making a freaking killing. Today, as we speak, shrimp is the second largest export of Bangladesh. So it's completely changed the country in this way. And... Um, Dude, it's pretty devastating. And, and that, that, that's just like an example. This is called aquaculture. The World Bank has also funded this in so many other countries, in India, along the Western coast of Latin America, like you'll see all these shrimp farms. Um, these are operations that do not benefit the local population, that deliver hard currency to usually unelected, unaccountable rulers who spend it on weapons, guns, paying back debt, and buying palaces and um, collections of cars and wine and things like that. It's, it's, it's really devastating to the local population. This show is brought to you by Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S+. Plus. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. 
Now, I have been a Lytus customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast, and I absolutely love the S+. Plus. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Next up, we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, and they are trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino that you can go to. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up, we have Ledin. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only a Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot io. Also today we have Fidelity Investments. Now one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking how to break into the industry and Fidelity Investments reach out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team to help shape the future of money. Now Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day. And they have also been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. Now, they started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team and services ever since. And their in-house fintech incubator is where the teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now, you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. And they provide the resources, training, and development to make you successful in this emerging industry. Now, if you want to learn more about this, then please head over to crypto.fidelitycareers.com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. So when you follow the incentives, like who gains here? Obviously, any dictator who takes the money, who is able to you know, buy a palace, buy cars and buy wines and cigars and have their parties. That one's pretty clear and obvious and that they will do that to the detriment of the, the people of their country. When you follow the incentives back to the World Bank and the mm-hmm. institutions, where are the incentives? Because you can see the incentives for shitty decisions within corporations and companies where you have you know, owners, the board members, they get to benefit from the profits of these mm-hmm. companies. But within inst- institutions, there isn't like that direct. So, is it is it career incentives? Is it like are, are these you know cr- these people who are thinking like I I have a career beyond the World Bank within government? Like, how does it? Where's the incentives? Because it's fucking terrible behavior. Yeah, and and I want to do a couple more case studies, but okay. but let's do some of the. And I have questions. On yeah, that let's as well. do some of the data first. Um, I think it'd be helpful to to put up this this chart. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's an old chart. A lot of again, a lot of the best stuff about the bank and fund is 
is old. You have to go to the library. You have to dig out books um, because a lot of the critical analysis has just been like turned off. But this is is an important chart, and I'll try to explain it um, so listeners can 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 understand what we're looking at here. But um, the important thing is is this is this from a book from you know basically 40, 50 years ago that that describes how debt cycles work with with World Bank loans. Okay, so the important thing for you to look at, Peter, is is this bottom line, which is called net capital flow, and what you can see along the x access is the is the years. So if you look at net capital flow, obviously when a, when a when a country first takes on a loan from the World Bank, as you see, it has positive net capital flow. It's getting the money that was loaned to them by the bank. So for the first 10 or 15 yeah. years, they're in the money, right? The right. the dictator has a bunch of cash. So this gives some perspective. That looks at say about what 75 million dollars positive. Yeah, exactly. Within Something 10 like years. That. Right. So and but, hold on, hold on a yeah, second, just, just to ask. So it looks like it's, it starts up like they've got like $25 million at the start. After 10 years, that's a 75. Is that, a, is that the productivity that increases? No, no, no. These are disbursements. Oh, disbursements. This is the money. Ah. This is, let's say they do a $500 million loan to over help build years, a dam right. over 10 years. Okay. And then you have 40 years to pay it back. Usually these loans are like really long and they get delayed. So like okay. there literally are loans that countries are still paying back from the 80s today, right? So the point is that in the first few years, the, the borrower country is, is, you know, is in the black. Like it's, it's getting a flow of money from the World Bank that it's using to do stuff with. But after, you know, about, as you can see, about eight, nine years, it start, that, that flow starts to peak and then it starts to go the other way. And then as you can see here, as you get around year 15 to year 20, it starts to go negative. And then it goes really negative. And so the like, negative is, is that repayment? Yes, that's repayment of interest, okay? Holy so shit. you have to pay back what they gave you plus, plus the interest, okay? So the net capital flow eventually of the loan that is given to a poor country because of these high interest rates is super negative. Now this is just an example of like one loan um, but you the have to example, understand the, the, again, for the people listening, the net, uh, what have we got? The net inflow is, it peaks at around 75 million. The net outflow gets to nearly 800 million. Yeah. Yeah. Negative. Negative. Yeah. Negative. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we'll, 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 we'll clip this for folks to yeah. kind of study and look at. It's kind of just like this. It's a very powerful image. Well, um, we'll put the image in the show notes and it'll be on the video yeah, for people yeah. to see. But, but huh. let me, let's okay. move to like the actual data. So what does okay. this mean? That's just one loan. There are thousands of these loans being poured into these countries in the 60s, in the 70s, and in the 80s, in the 90s, et cetera. So I'll give you the outcome. So here's some data. So between 1970 and 2007, so that's from the end of the gold standard to the great financial crisis, the total debt service paid by poor countries to rich ones was $7.15 trillion. Okay, that's the debt against, service. Against loans of how much? That's just uh, what they paid. Obviously, what was given to them was way less because that's, that's principal plus interest. Over, so that's over 37 years? That's over 37 years. What's, that, what's global GDP? Um, well, <laughs> uh, the annual GDP uh, of the U.S. is around $20 trillion. So, I mean, okay. it's a lot of money, but the point is it's the equivalent of 71 Marshall plans. Okay. okay. So the Marshall plan that helped rebuild yeah, Europe, yeah. Um, we're talking many, 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 many multiples of that flowing from poor countries to rich countries. So basically 1982 was the year when everything switched. So since 1982, 
The amount of money that has flowed from poor countries to rich countries has dwarfed the amount of aid and loans that are sent the other way. So here's some more here's it some more data. It is pure resource trade. Yeah, it's pure resource trade, and people don't. I didn't know this. So huh. so according to to a study from 2012, um, that year, this gives you like a one year example. More recently, developing countries received 1.3 trillion. This included investment, aid, and income, everything. So all of the like value that flowed to poor countries was 1.3 trillion. That same year, 3.3 trillion flowed out. Okay, so. Developing countries sent two trillion more to the rest of the world than they received. And then here's like when you add up all the flows from 1980 to 2012. So in the, in, in the preceding few decades, 16.3 trillion was drained out of the developing world. Okay. So these institutions were supposed to rescue and save these countries. And the outcome is the opposite. And the people who work at these institutions should have to answer to that. Why is this the case? And, and I guess what I would say is that Look, if it's a one-time problem, maybe it's a mistake. And a lot of the critics, I mean, this is where my thesis differs from the traditional criticism of the bank and the fund. The traditional criticism of the bank and the fund, some of it's libertarian, some of it's, you know, libertarians, of course, say the whole thing's a waste and, the ta- you know, the taxpayer shouldn't pay for this absurd, you know, expenditure of money in the third world that doesn't do anything. Um, the Marxists, you know, have, have other criticisms, but a lot of people have criticisms of, of these institutions. Stiglitz, there's all kinds of mainstream people who've said that the institutions aren't good. The problem is, their argument is that um, there are too many mistakes made, they're incompetent, they're corrupt, like the bank and the fund are messing up. I don't think that's an, I don't think that's a sufficient answer. I think if you have clear resource drain every year since 1982, it's not a mistake. That can't be a mistake. I don't believe that. I think it's actually institutionally structured this way. It is a result of policies that squeeze poor countries, and like that squeeze poor countries and reduce their consumption at the expense of selling us stuff um, and enormous amounts of debt along the way. Like that. That's literally what what has occurred. So I don't, I don't accept the idea that this is some sort of like mistake or mismanagement or we screwed up. No, no, no. Like, I think this was quite intentional. What about the scenarios where we will see or uh, hear about a country, maybe Lebanon as an example, which is suffering from massive inflation or economic collapse, and their only option appears to be to go to the World Bank? Um, in those scenarios, what is the duty of the World Bank? Like, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to try so and see the good it's side. It's like a drug. So yeah. debt is like a drug. It's like heroin. Um, it's extremely addictive and it's really hard to get off of. And it's very painful to get off of. But getting off of it is the right choice. Okay. Okay. So these countries should have made painful choices a long time ago, but they were convinced not to do so by the drug dealers, meaning the World Bank and the IMF. So, for example, in ca- if here's you think, a free sample. If you think, yeah, if you think the world is a free market, which I which I don't think it is, and, and we can get into that. But the point is that if you think the world's all free markets and capitalism, then there should be bankruptcies. People should be allowed to fail, yes. right? There shouldn't be bailouts. The problem is that every time one of these poor countries um, defaulted or or basically couldn't pay, what 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 we what we should remember is that every liability is somebody else's asset, right? Mm. So when $100 million is loaned to the Congo, to Mobutu in the 70s, this horrible dictator who was ruling what was then called Zaire, 
and either the fund or the bank gave him $100 million for something. Um, that loan is an asset on a Western bank's balance sheet, okay? Hmm. So that Western bank does not want that to go to zero, okay? No way, okay? So then Mobutu says, well, I don't have the money. Sorry, I can't pay you back. So the IMF says, okay, here's some more money. A new and that way you, the in. original loan is preserved as an asset on the balance sheet. And Mobutu starts using the new money to pay back the old money. Basically, by the mid-1970s, American policymakers and people at the bank and the fund realized that the only way these poor countries would be able to pay the debt back was with more debt. It was a literal Ponzi scheme. Okay? Right. Literal Ponzi scheme. But we do we, we do hear this like certain conditions that comes with debt. Uh, so I, I seem to remember, I'd have to look it up. Um, whether it was Cyprus or Greece during their uh, crisis, mm -hmm. that there were conditions of the World Bank loans where they had to change something like tax, their tax rates had to change. I, 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 yeah, I'm trying I'm to remember. give you the playbook. I'm yeah. going to give you the playbook. But I'm trying to remember, but there are certain conditions that come well, with it's loans. Called, people call it the Washington Consensus. Right. Um, but here, here's the playbook. I have 10 things that, that the IMF or the World Bank would, would, would do. The IMF would do this from inception and the World Bank started increasingly doing this since 1980, which again is tying the loan, which again is not free to begin with, like it means the poor country has to pay back more than what it than what it received, okay, over time. In addition to that, uh, they came with conditions, which is, which is called structural adjustment, mm. okay? So that means usually a mixture of 10 things. The first one is currency devaluation. So again, this is like the doctor coming in to the patient who's sick and saying, you have to do th these things to get better. Um, so the first thing they'll do is try to do currency devaluation. Again, all of these things are meant to like generate more exports so that the country can generate more hard currency to pay back its debt. Okay, so currency devaluation. Most Bitcoiners will understand that that's really bad for savers, right? That for individuals, right? Number two, uh, the abolition or reduction of foreign exchange and import controls. Okay, so typically like Western countries have 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 controls on these sort of things. Of course. Right? We like to say that we're all free market, but, but we're not. We have these controls. But when a poor country has a crisis, we say, you have to get rid of all your controls, which of course leads to massive capital flight, right? All the rich mm -hmm. people take their money out of the country, right? And that, that's what, a lot of the drain that we speak of is, is corporations and rich people taking the money out, right? Um, number three, the shrinking of domestic bank credit. So this is particularly devastating to local businesses because let's say you're a small entrepreneur in, I don't know, Mexico in the 1980s. When the IMF came in and, and, and requested that the bank credit be shrunk, all of a sudden it's like really hard for you to get a loan to do your stuff. Meanwhile, the multinational corporations, they don't have any problems borrowing from abroad. So it, it like really hurts the little guy at the expense of the big one. <clears throat> Number four would be jacked up interest rates. So they tell the country to really jack up the interest rates, which of course, as we're finding out now in rich countries, really hurts the economy and really hurts people, hurts a lot of people, okay? Number five, they increase taxes, big time, all kinds of taxes. Um, number six, an end to any like subsidies on food or energy. So again, these are poor countries and I'm kind of a free market guy, um, for sure. I love capitalism, but like when you have a country like Sri Lanka, that's been for a long time giving free rice to its people, and you have Britain, which is giving free health care to its people, say, you can't do that anymore, that's a double standard. And that's, that's not a free market, okay? So you have this country that's used to free rice, which again, may not be the best economic decision, but you know what? Like it's helping people, people in, can in a eat. way. People can eat, all of a sudden they can't eat. They get really pissed, right? Hmm. So protests, et cetera. Um, Wage ceilings, so this one's tough. So um, even though the prices of goods go way up after structural adjustment, 
the the IMF um, says that there, you 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 can't raise wage, you can't do any minimum wage type stuff. So you have to put a ceiling on the wage. Okay, the whole point is to like squeeze more out of the countries without the workers getting more. It's kind of like a way of making sure the you know the labor share in economy. Mm. It, you, the IMF policies are designed to make the share of labor in an economy be as small as possible, okay? To screw over the laborers, basically. Then there's restrictions on government spending, especially in healthcare and education. So again, I don't think it's the greatest idea for the government to be in charge of these things. But you gotta understand, in like the late 70s, these African countries had free healthcare. A lot of them had free healthcare. Now, was it good? Probably not. Um, but to go from free healthcare to then no free healthcare, and it's really expensive, is really bad and will, and led to massive reduction in child and mother mortality, okay? Deterioration in those rates, okay? This is all like, like research has shown this. Number nine, favorable legal conditions and incentives for multinational corporations. There we so, go. So there'll yep. be subsidies, tax breaks, all kinds of things for giant corporations from our countries to go in and take Asset all the stuff. Strip. It's asset stripping. Finally, the fire sale or garage sale on state enterprises and claims on natural resources. So what are these, these governments are going bankrupt. They have to pay back their debt. One of the things they might do is sell off the national oil company or whatever uh, to a foreign company at, at, at by the way, at, at a fraction of what it costs to make. So you get to come in and like pick up the pieces. So the structural, structural adjustment meant any combination of these 10 things, often all 10, you know, in many cases. And again, if you look at the IMF is actually quite transparent in terms of, it's not transparent in a lot of ways, but it's transparent and there's a website you can go to. And if you just Google IMF history and insert the name of the country, it'll show you the entire um, history. So if you wanna like, for yeah. example, do Argentina, do IMF history Argentina in Google. Check this out, Pete. Um, so this is all of the IMF loans to Argentina. So you can think about this as every time the, the okay, so government nice. in Argentina had like a crisis starting in 1958, you see over there the amount agreed and the amount drawn, that, that those are the loans that were taken. So 81 billion agreed. Yeah, so 70, the, at the beginning it was 75 million. And most recently, Holy not, shit. only four years ago, 40 billion. Uh, Argentina got the single largest uh, uh, loan from IMF in its history, uh, 40 one billion, almost $41 billion, right? When it says amount drawn, is that how much of that they've used? Yeah, exactly. They've actually- Oh, so they've still got access to another $9 billion yeah, if exactly. they want it. As right. of right now, yeah. And but out, they, they took $31 billion. And amount outstanding is how much they still owe. Hold on. Hold on. So- No, no, no. The, the, so the IMF, the amount agreed column is just the IMF says, we'll give you $40 billion. And the Argentina doesn't have to take the whole $40 billion. Yeah, they've, but, they've, they've taken $31.9 billion. But that's how much debt they owe back. So every time there's a new loan, it essentially repays the old yeah, loan. Yeah, so see the $40 billion paid off all the old stuff. Paid off all the old stuff. That's But what, they still owe $31 billion. Yeah. So, and, and I'll give you the so numbers. So essentially they're wrapping it up into a new loan. Yeah, but check this out. This is insane. So basically like... Um, if you look at the total debt owed by poor countries, um, we call it the external public debt, okay? Uh, that was $46 billion in the year 1970. Today, it's $8.7 trillion. <laughs> so, so in the past 50 years, countries like India, the Philippines, and the Congo now owe their former colonial masters 189 times the amount they owed in 1970. They've paid $4.2 trillion on interest payments alone since 1980. And for every $1 of aid that developing countries receive, they lose $24 in net outflows. This is uh, the loan sharks. 
Yeah, I mean they're drug I mean, dealers, they're uh, loan sharks. Lo- I mean, loan sharks. The, the 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 behavior of loan sharks is to keep you permanently indebted. It's to come to the, no, like the traditional loan sharks is to knock on the door. It's like, do you need fifty pound to borrow to get you through to payday? Yeah, I need fifty pound. Great. By the time next payday comes, you owe two hundred pound. You're permanently in yeah. debt. You can never pay off the loan. No, I've got, and I, I have to read this quote. I know that you, you and uh, I know that you and Safedine are not the best friends, but I will say the guy has an incredible chapter in his book, The Fiat Standard, on this. And let me read okay, this. Okay, no, I'm happy to read it. <clears throat> when book. when World Bank planning inevitably fails and the debts cannot be repaid, the IMF comes in to shake down the deadbeat countries, pillage their resources, and take control of political institutions. It's a symbiotic relationship between the two parasitic organizations that generates a lot of work, income, and travel for the misery industry's workers at the expense of the poor countries that have to pay for it all in loans. The more one reads about it, the more one realizes how catastrophic it's been to hand this class of powerful yet unaccountable bureaucrats an endless line of fiat credit and unleash them on the world's poor. The arrangement allows unelected foreigners with nothing at stake to control and centrally plan entire nations' economies. Indigenous populations are removed from their lands. Private businesses are closed to protect monopoly rights. Taxes are raised. Properties confiscated. Tax-free deals are provided to international corporations while local producers pay ever higher taxes and suffer from inflation to accommodate their government's fiscal incontinence. As part of the debt relief deal signed with the misery industry, governments were asked to sell off some of their most prized assets. This included government enterprises, but also natural resources and entire swaths of land. So that's what we've been talking about. I mean, these people are basically debt enforcers. Some, someone wrote a book in the 80s, which I thought had the brilliant title, The Debt Squads. You know, not mm. the debt squads, the de- they're the debt squads. Yeah. So the point is that um, these institutions have forever changed the shape of these societies. Um, and they've done so largely in league with dictators, which is why I got interested. And, and I want to talk about that. Um, Just a couple of questions yeah, before sure, we go, go into dictators. Okay. Yeah. So firstly, so aid is, are we essentially being, have I been gaslighted my entire life with the word aid by the belief that uh, aid sounds like a good word? Like aid, yeah, and, we're giving aid well, to the country. Is, is it just a fucking so loan? This is not a conversation about the effectiveness of actual aid. That's a different conversation. But is is aid actually a loan? Is it a gift or is it a loan? It, it, so, so ODA includes both. Official development assistance includes both aid and loans. Let's just put it this way. I still think it's a good idea for people to be charitable and to help people at a time of need. Agreed. Okay? And there are very effective ways to do that in different different ways. And, and even the U.S. government still at times can do that. Like there will be a natural disaster and we'll use our army to go in and like feed people. And that, that, that that's helpful. Okay. Um, the percentage of assistance that is pure aid versus loans is very small. Okay. So when we talk about assistance going into these countries, it's mainly loans that need to be paid back. Now, in the last couple decades, the IMF and World Bank came under a lot of scrutiny. So they started to change some of their policies to, to, to make it look like they were like, less less exploitative. So now there's like a category of what are called highly indebted poor countries or like HIPCs or whatever. Now these countries can qualify for what's called like debt relief, um, which often means like the the loans they get are are interest-free and they can be like um, repaid over a really long period of time. Um, But, you know, it's only adding to the debt pile. And, and not all of the loans they get are, are, are in this way. Um, so again, I mean, all, all you need to see to understand the failure of the bank and the fund is the fact that the debt of the poor countries has gone exponentially higher than it used to be. So remember, again, just zoom out. Like 
50, 60 years ago, these countries, they were poor. It's true. They were poor, but they weren't debt slaves. Hmm. Okay. They didn't owe money to other countries. Today, they all, the, the number one thing they have to do when these governments sit down to pay their monthly bill, essentially, is service debt. That is like a really broken world. So recently I saw, was it John Kerry was sat down with Maduro? Was it John Kerry? Can you search Yeah, on? yes. No, he, he had a handshake with yeah. Maduro. Yeah. And Maduro um, uh, recently, last recent years, has been subject to sanctions as mm-hmm. a dictator. Yeah. Now the U.S. has an energy crisis, needs potentially access to oil. We know that Venezuela hasn't been... Uh, mining uh, the oil to the extent it could previously because sure. the infrastructure failed because I don't know what it is something to do with the heavy oil it is it's deep down no well I mean the, the, it's hard the, to mine the, and the, the infrastructure failed Western engineers can't go in the communist ones are not very good at yeah. taking the oil out of the so so is this another example of a, a similar situation we're going to see here are we going to see exactly the same like. Will Maduro be brought back into the international fold? Will Venezuela be offered loans in return Probably. for access to these resources? Yeah, yeah, Is yeah. this the same scenario? Yeah, yeah. And, and look, again, yeah, it's all about like our needs as as large Western industrial powers. Can right? you find that, by the way? Yeah, it was. Him. Yeah, there's like a video of them shaking hands. But the, 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 the overall point is that, you know, basically the IMF never met a dictator it didn't like. I mean, and, 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 and it wasn't political. Like you'd think, oh, it must be Cold War. So they must not have given any money to the communists. That's totally not true. So I'll give you three examples. So they gave a ton of money to Tito in Yugoslavia. Yeah. Like a notorious, you know, socialist dictator. They gave a ton of money to Cochescu in Romania, communist dictator. And they gave a bunch of money to Niere in Tanzania, uh, who ruled for like 20 years and was a hardcore socialist and, you know, basically all three of these people like totally bankrupt their countries. I met a guy yesterday at, at the event we're at who showed me a banknote from the 90s from Yugoslavia. And they had hyperinflation, like Zimbabwe levels. I mean, I think he said three of the, you know, worst five hyperinflationary events in the world were in Yugoslavia. And, you know, the, the, basically these were the like outcomes of the policies of these leaders. The point is the IMF and the bank didn't necessarily use Cold War lenses, they, they would just lend to anyone who who could who could benefit them. So this is sort of different than, you know, you talk about the CIA in, in American foreign policy during the Cold War. We're almost operating on like, that's like level one. We're like on a second level here. Like the IMF and World Bank are operating on a meta level. Like we're above Cold War politics. We're, 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 we're at the level of timeless, strong countries abusing poor countries. This is way beyond the Cold War. And other countries do it too in their own microcosm. China, Belgium Road is yeah, exactly, exactly the same policy. Now, they won't be as effective as the United States and its allies because they don't control the reserve currency of the world, but they are absolutely trying to copy the playbook of the IMF and World Bank. In fact, I have a, a quote here. So does, does the Belt and Road just show that this would happen with or without the World Bank and the IMF? I mean, it's, it, 
you're basically saying is this just power games? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me read. I'll, I'll, I'll let the listeners and the viewers judge, but here's a description of the Belt and Road scheme. And I'll let you, I'll let you determine how closely you think this reminds you of something else that we've just covered. Okay. So through its $1 trillion, one belt, one road initiative, China is supporting infrastructure projects in strategically located developing countries, often by extending huge loans to their governments. As a result, countries are becoming ensnared in a debt trap that leaves them vulnerable to China's influence. The projects that China is supporting are often intended not to support the local economy, but to facilitate Chinese access to natural resources or to open the market for its low cost and shoddy export goods. In many cases, China even sends its own construction workers, minimizing the number of local jobs that are created. They are following the IMF blueprint to a T, literally to a T. That's exactly what the IMF does, right? And, you know, I don't know how successful they'll they'll be. Um, But point is the Soviets did some of this, the Chinese will do it, every great power will do it to weaker countries. So what I mean by like operating on a different level is simply that, you know, this is kind of like timeless, I think a timeless struggle. Um, And I don't, I don't know, um, you know, if, if changing politics really alters it very much. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. Now BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry, And yes, I am now a customer of BCB2. Now, they heard about the difficulty I had with finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, and they are expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. So if you're looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you might want to become a BCB customer too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up is my new sponsor, Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can be done automatically. So you just have to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement, which, you know, that's always something I care about. Now, you do get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Now, privacy is something I am definitely taking more seriously, and with the recently released Wasabi 2.0, this becomes so much easier. Now, if you do want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Also today we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. But whilst we're at the bottom of a bear market, I'm only buying. We're hodlers, right? We hodl through this. Now I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips all through this. And I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy. And Gemini have invested in building leading industry security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G E M 
ini.com forward slash WBD. Yeah, did I read yesterday 12 countries have applied to join BRIC? It's possible. I mean, could and could this would, yeah, I, I'm not that very bullish on, on, on China for a variety of reasons. It, it's a, it's an energy and food importer. It has the demographic crisis as population is shrinking. Like mm. I don't, I don't think it's going to have the same success as, as the U S has had, um, and for many, many, many reasons, uh, primarily because it doesn't issue the world reserve currency. One of the reasons this IMF and World Bank thing has been able to work so well, uh, you know, especially since 1970, one is that it's fueled by this like fiat system. So like the, 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 like the, the, the deposits that are flowing into the bank and fund that allow them to, to offer these loans are, are, are generated often, you know, essentially from thin air, you know, from, from the American printing press. Like it's not, it's not like there's like a certain amount of scarce resources that are, that are, that are at stake here. Um, when McNamara was at the world bank in, in the seventies, he, again, he realized this concept that these poor countries could only pay back the debt with more debt. So he was like, all right, we're just gonna, we're just gonna expand the debt in a massive way. And all of a sudden all like the admins, the hundreds of people who worked at the bank and the fund had to allocate like four or five times as much money each year. And that's what led to what what are called these like white elephants. White elephants are these enormous projects in these poor countries that clearly have no benefit for the local population. And the reason they were chosen is because it's just sort of easier for the administrators of the loans to deal with. So like, for example, you have, if you're trying to, if you're like, oh my God, I got to give a billion dollars out to like sub-Saharan Africa, like is it easier to do like a thousand small projects or like a giant dam? Well, obviously the giant dam. Mm. So a lot of it, as you point out, is like incentives that are micro incentives that, that shape a lot of things. But in, in, in the end, a lot of the massive expansion of the debt that's been extended to these countries has been used for like really, really lar- large projects like hydroelectric dams that facilitate um, the extraction of minerals or transmigration, which I definitely want to get into. Um, but yeah, I mean like the typical white elephant project would be like, for example, a dam that electrifies the ability of a foreign company to dig out bauxite from the ground and put it on a train and ship it to the coast and put it on a ship and get it out of there with zero, benefit to the local population. And, and often these like multinationals own 90% of the stock in the company and the dictator, corrupt dictator owns the other nine to 10%. So oftentimes it would be literally like you would, they would build like a, 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 a train uh, track um, from the mountains to the coast to get the stuff out. <clears throat> and um, they would electrify this whole apparatus, but they wouldn't, like there would be all these poor people along the way who are still using like oil lamps and stuff. And they wouldn't like, this is so like a lot of what the funding bank did again are really just designed to like extract resources from these countries, which, which again is either, you know, through the production of raw goods um, with cheap labor, like the shrimp example, or or literally just natural resources. Yeah. When you see, Uh, announcements now by the IMF or the World Bank, do you see it with a completely different lens? And especially thinking about, say, what's happened with El Salvador, you know, uh, I know you've been very critical of El Salvador, but at the same time, there is this Bitcoin 
policy within the country and it has been challenged or questioned by the likes of the IMF. Do you see it with a different lens? Totally. Yeah. No. And, and look, so currently right now we're about to enter into another decade that's like the 1980s. So the 1980s for poor countries was, was like the great depression for, for us. Um, they lost everything. They, they, their GDP was reduced, um, by 10, 20% more in some cases. Um, again, the share of labor in the economy went way down. Like the standard of living was just absolutely crushed. Like the amount of hours you had to work to feed your family went way up, like basically. Okay. And that was a result of this like Ponzi kind of like popping, right? As I was describing before, you had more debt, paying for more debt, paying for more debt. So when Paul Volcker raised the price of debt, the cost of capital way up to solve America's domestic problems, (laughs) it meant that all these countries all of a sudden, like, they had a massive crisis. And that's when you really saw the IMF like get supercharged because it had been doing its thing in the 50s and 60s and 70s, but in the 80s, it assumed like a whole new role. Like, and it became much, much bigger. Ditto the bank. Like all of a sudden, like the, you know, that's why you see the debt of these countries really start to rise in the 80s. Um, their economies totally failed and seized up. And again, like for example, Mexico was was the warning. Mexico was like the Lehman Brothers moment for the third world debt crisis. Um, so Mexico in 1982 said, we can't pay our debt back. <laughs> and, and the U S government was like, uh Oh, um, wait a second. And, and they realized the debt Mexico owed was like an enormous percentage of U S banks balance sheets. Okay. And they were like, Nope, we, you, Nope, you can't, you can't go bankrupt. We're not allowing that. Um, so we're going to come bail you out with a huge amount of money. And at that, of course it's been dwarfed by more recent stuff. Um, but we came in and we gave, through, through these, through, through the bank and the fund, like just enormous amounts of money. And that kept like going. And even though it's weird, like the, the kind of the debate around the, the fund and the bank, I think have, have reduced recently, the amounts have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. So you saw that amount for Argentina just a couple of years ago, yep. but really the most, so there was, a, in the eighties, there was like a new level of, of lending with the third world debt crisis. And in the nineties, there was an even bigger, uh, level of lending during the Asian financial crisis. And in the 2010s, there was an even bigger level of lending, which dwarfed to the other ones in the European debt crisis. So all of a sudden you didn't just have countries in Latin America and Africa and East Asia needing these funds. You had countries in Europe, you had Greece and you had Iceland and you had Poland and Spain, like basically needing bailouts. And they used the same playbook. I mean, they came in and they, the one I, the, literally the playbook I just, um, went through. I mean, they would use a lot of that for European countries as well. And then to really put the cherry on top, you have the lockdowns. Okay. So during COVID, the IMF and World Bank became much bigger. So now the IMF is a trillion dollar institution. So it used to be a 250 billion and then it was 750 billion. And now post kind of COVID lockdown pandemic, it's like a trillion dollars. So they've actually grown an enormous amount uh, over over the last uh, few decades. In in some ways, are they trapped by the exact same thing that the countries that they're seemingly helping are trapped? Like if, if they know that all these countries are massively indebted and can't pay back their debt, they can either let them fail or give them more debt. So are they stuck between like a rock and a hard place as well? Well, I mean, not really because like... But you said I mean, before... They could just, I mean, the, the right thing to do would be actually, in my opinion, to, to cancel some of the debt, actually. But, Alex, but that means that Western banks 
lose assets. Yeah. And they're beholden to those banks. So in that way, are they trapped? Like they have to issue more debt to let this continue. Yes, but I don't have sympathy for them. No, no. But I think I I I know what Danny's getting to. You you alluded to that the 1930s, this Great Depression was, you know, could have been part caused by the end of colonialism. Yeah. And could we see another depression caused by the fact that uh, this financial colonialism ends and these debts will have to be wiped out or not paid off? Yeah, I think there's a good... um, chance that this, and it's all part of the fiat system, right? Yeah. This fiat debt bubble that, that a lot of your guests talk about, like it's, it's going to pop at some point. And I don't know if that's a gradual thing. It could be gradual or it could be like seismic, but it has to unwind. We're seeing a little bit of that right now in a very small extent, but you see even what a small unwind does to the economy, yeah. right? Um, and are you connecting the dots between like everything you do, every, every, Three months, you and I sit down, we have a conversation about <laughs> some new piece of research you've done, whether it's the IMF or the World Bank, whether it's you know the dollar as a, as a reserve currency. Yes. Is, are you connecting all it's the all dots connected. now? It's all connected. Yeah, and I, I think this was the missing piece for me, understanding the role of the bank and the fund. Because again, the, the, the fund is the world's international lender of last resort, and the bank is the world's largest development bank. Um, they're really important to how the every financial market works. And the fact that they're not discussed when we talk about macro uh, is, is, I think, a mistake. Now, to to speed up to date, right now, and and to talk about El Salvador, again, right now we're about to see the 1980s over again for these countries. Like uh, the U.S. government is raising the cost of capital. The the Fed funds rate is skyrocketing. We're going to have another 50 uh, basis point increase next month, probably. Um, It's making all this debt that they have way more expensive. I mean, you can just imagine how insane this is now um, that these countries, at least they were bailed out by the fact that there was ZERP, there was zero interest rate policy. Like at least the cost of borrowing was pretty cheap in the last decade. It's not going to be cheap anymore, right? So you're going to have a list of state failures, right? So that's already started to happen. So we saw Sri Lanka. Um, we saw Iraq. Um, the 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 new meme is um, people swimming in the a swimming pool of the of the of the former president. Right, yeah. we're going to see a lot of that this decade. So now the IMF is going to try and step in and try to prevent some of this stuff from happening. So it's got to shift its resources away from Europe, where it was like trying to hold together the EU essentially, and 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 kind of excuse and 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 subsidize the lockdown policies. It's got to now shift back to the third world, and that's what's happening right now. So the IMF has just been in Egypt. Dealing, making a big deal with the military dictatorship there. The IMF uh, is going to Ghana uh, and the Ghanaian currency has, you know, like Ghana is one of these other countries that's had this like super long history with the IMF. They've been bailed out a million times. Um, should have been let, you know, they should have just been bankrupt and restarted. And instead they, they've been like zombie, you know, they've been like kept alive like a zombie essentially. Um, and the Ghanaian currency, the CD is like the worst performing currency in the world this year. And I, I think it's an interesting, you know, I'll probably end my essay with, with, with thinking about like the dichotomy between the IMF visit to Ghana, which just happened a few weeks ago, where these people are going to come in with reckless abandon and totally crush the lives of all these people just so that that economy can squeeze out more hard currency to pay its debts. And the contrast couldn't be greater with the Africa Bitcoin conference that my organization is really delighted to sponsor, where we're going to be coming in and showing people how to escape from the system through Bitcoin. Mm. I think that's pretty fucking cool. So, I mean, basically, I mean, that's kind of where we're at is, is the IMF and World Bank are going to get a lot more relevant in the, in the developing world again. Um, And I, I hope, I hope we can create a dialogue around that. I mean, what, what really got me thinking was I was, you know, considering, okay, so 
we talk about how Mao and Stalin probably killed 100 million people, right? Like in the 20th century. Um, these are rough estimates, but, you know, most of them didn't die by the sword or the gun. Most of them died because of disastrous uh, agricultural policy, right? You had people who didn't know how to farm being moved to farms and then they starved to death, things like that. Um, you had, you know, like people dependent on imports of a particular food uh, stuff and then that just like disappeared and they all starved. Like, so it was usually like agricultural uh, related. Um, so no one's ever done a... No one's ever done an accounting of how many deaths World Bank and IMF structural adjustment policies inflicted on, on the developing world, and especially in the 70s and 80s, but like, you know, just generally speaking. Um, but you can, you can do the math. I mean, so again, studies show that for every 2% decline in GDP, mortality rate increases by, by 1% or rather deteriorates by 1%. So if you think about how adjust, structural adjustment and austerity policies imposed by the bank and the fund caused massive contractions in GDPs in GDP for some of these countries over the years. We're talking millions and millions of deaths. I mean, maybe tens of millions of deaths. I mean, it can, it can probably be calculated and someone should do it. Um, and you know what? There's never going to be any justice. No one's going to go to prison. It's all, in, it's all in the past. Okay. Um, but we can at least talk about it and acknowledge it. And I think that's important. I was talking the other day with, um, a woman from Indonesia, and I do want to mention this this case because it's so powerful. Um, and uh, she works for a, a nonprofit that works in this place called West Papua. Um, maybe Danny, you can bring up like a map yeah. of West Papua. It's a P A P U A, um, and we can just kind of can locate it for for Peter. But basically, like I I, I talked to her about I wanted I wanted I'm digging into the World Bank and IMF's role in repression in her country. Um, yeah, so you can see this is a map. If you just zoom out a little bit, yeah. So you can see Indonesia. Yeah. So Papua and West Papua uh, constitute the western half of the island of New Guinea. Mm -hmm. So New Guinea is this incredible treasure. It's so rich in every possible natural resource. It has the richest coral seas. It's like a gem on the planet, right? It's got it, such a dense forest that parts of it are still unmapped. It's it has wild. the third largest rainforest in the world after the Amazon and the Congo. And if you, if you just, if you just, just for a second, like, so the Eastern half is its own sovereign nation, Papua New Guinea, which was, which was one, at one time an Australian colony. The Western half has been under military occupation by the Indonesians ever since Indonesia became independent from the Dutch. In 69, there was something called the act of free choice. So basically in the Western half of the island, you have like hundreds of indigenous tribes that have nothing to do with Indonesia is really that island on the left, Java, Java is yeah. where like most people live, this enormous island over on the left under Sumatra. That's where like a hundred million people out of the Indonesian population live. And the Javanese basically colonized all these small islands. The people who live in West Papa are, are totally different ethnicity, different, different religions, like everything. They're, they're just different. So um, you have these people there and they've been relentlessly persecuted. So uh, by Dutch colonialism. And then in 69, the Indonesian military did like a, like a puppet vote where they like picked a thousand people in front of soldiers who had guns and made them say whether or not they wanted to be part of Indonesia. And of course, everybody said yes. Mm. So it's been, and that was ratified by the UN. So this has been part of Indonesia since then. Um, 
And it's like, honestly, probably one of the world's like most repressive police states in, 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 in the entire planet. Um, there's no free press. Journalists aren't allowed to come in. Uh, the military has free reign to kill people. It does it all the time. Um, it's, it's actually really crazy. And very few people know about West Papua. And it reminds me of Pandora. It literally reminds me of Pandora from, from Avatar, from the movie. I mean, it's, 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 it's just this incredibly rich place. So in West Pop, in Papua, you have the world's largest gold mine. It's called Freeport. And it's, it's, it's so devastating. I mean, it's, it's the largest gold mine in the world. And the, um, I'm going to give you some, some, some numbers. So yeah, so that's the largest gold mine in the world. It's called the Grasberg mine operated by Freeport. It's, it's, it it's next to a mountain called the Punkak Jaya, which is, which is, which is a 4,800 meter peak. It's the the tallest peak in the, in the whole region. Um, and I'll just give you some data. That's, that's, I think going to shock you uh, on this, um, it's called uh, Freeport. <laughs> yeah, so check this out. So by the time this mine will be depleted, it will have generated 6 billion tons of waste, more than twice as much rock as was excavated to dig the Panama Canal. Um, now this mine was until recently 90% controlled by this like Phoenix-based, Arizona-based company, Freeport. And the rest was given to the Indonesian government. The, this company is the largest foreign taxpayer in Indonesia and the local people get literally nothing. Um, the ecosystems downstream from the mine have been devastated. Uh, more than a billion tons of waste have been dumped directly into a jungle river of what had been one of the world's last untouched landscapes. More than 200,000 tons of toxic tailings, like basically waste material from mining gold and copper, are dumped every day into a World Heritage site. Um, and basically like <laughs> this is part of the kind of bank fund plan. This is like this is like a visual, vivid description of kind of the goal of what they do. Um, is they build infrastructure. This is from the World Bank's own words. Um, they say international business interests want better infrastructure in order to extract and export the non-renewable mineral, non-renewable mineral and forest assets. So this is the kind of project that that would be you know related to what we're talking about here. And, um, but Bitcoin mining bad. Yeah. yeah Bitcoin mining is bad. Yeah. <laughs> bad. But the, the crazy part is for these people, they were subject to the world's largest human experiment. So if you go back to the map of Indonesia, yep. Danny, um, so again, like for a long, long time, the officials in Java have said, there's too many people here. We need to move them around. So there, this was called transmigration. And the World Bank actually gave like a half billion dollar, uh, a half a billion dollars. Um, in the 1980s directly to support this. And what this meant was like people were moved from Java to places like Papua um, and it was like settler colonialism. Like basically the, the local people who lived there were like pushed aside. All other shit was like burned down and, and like these new settlers were there to like grow export crops for the Indonesian government. And this has been happening, happening and happening to the extent where... Um, in Papa, like the, the ethnic Papans, let's say, used to be 90% of the population. And today they're less than less than 30% of the population. So it's, it's like cultural genocide that's happening there. And the bank funded it. It's insane. And, then, and again, they've never paid a price. Um, I'll talk about this in my essay, but the, 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 there was a loan not that long ago, in 2001, a huge loan that the banks uh, financed for uh, roads, and infrastructure in, in, in Papa and, and a few of the other islands in Eastern Indonesia. And again, it's very clear that this project was, to, was, was not to help the local population, but instead to build better roads so that bigger trucks could come in and extract more stuff from this place. Mm -hmm. Again, one of the world's like last remaining untouched landscapes. 
And this just shows you like really what the bank and fund are all about. They could care less about human rights or the indigenous people or any of this stuff. Um, it's all like, and again, the people who work at the World Bank probably don't even know what we're talking about. I mean, it's so buried under paperwork. Um, the amount of reports that these institutions create are legion. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of pages of stuff. Of course, the human experience has been completely stripped out of them. They use jargon and all kinds of different, you know, um, you know, uh, euphemisms. You know, we talk about, I mean, the structural adjustment, it, you would look at it and say, oh, you know, that sounds fine. Like it hides the enormous human mm. toll of, of what has happened. But, but what, what can we do? Um, <laughs> and it's a big question, but it's a huge question. But when you talk about shrimp, uh, yeah. I had a bloody shrimp sandwich yesterday at lunch. Like, uh, I don't want to be... There's, there's, so we start with knowledge, right? So yeah. I think the most important thing is for people to learn about the bank and the fund and, and to like start to at least memorialize in their mind. And, and we create a collective legacy of like what they've done. And, and we try to think about how we can avoid doing that in the future. Now, I've talked to um, a few people uh, about this in terms of like, because again, I don't think there's like, there's not going to be justice. Mm. This is all done. Everything the bank and fund has done in terms of like, again, squeezing value out of poor countries to benefit rich countries is forever encrusted in our societies. Like when I, when you walk around London or Amsterdam or Berlin or New York, like, yes, a lot of the success of what we've done in Western civilization or Tokyo is freedom, is free speech, property rights, press freedom, the, the, the stuff that I fight for all the time, like is democracy. These things have given us enormous fruits. What we don't think about is that the other half of the equation has been stealing stuff from poor countries. And that's not acknowledged and we don't talk about that. And it's part of the picture. So both have been necessary to create the success of the West. Um, so when we talk about a future that's not exploitative, it's difficult to think about because it because we've never seen anything like that before, mm -hmm. right? Now, I talked at length with with uh, Jeff Booth and Seyfedin about about this. Both of them have, have very interesting ideas uh, relating to this. But one one concept is you know if there is a Bitcoin standard, like for now, Bitcoin is just a tool that people can use to escape like bank and fund policy in a way. Like generally speaking, if you didn't have Bitcoin you would be completely at the mercy of the local currency being collapsed by IMF and fund policy. So at least Bitcoin gives you a little bit of an escape, right? Um, you can borrow from international markets because again, they, they constrict lending and they, they basically shrink everything, right? So if you have a world where um, we no longer are on the fiat standard and we're in the Bitcoin standard, then the general operations of the World Bank and the IMF maybe become impossible to run. Like maybe they become more like normal banks that have to take normal risk instead of being able to bail countries out for decades on end as part of this massive debt bubble. So if the debt bubble and the debt party ends, um, they may have to just be a lot more careful and discriminating about what they fund, um, or they might just disappear entirely. Mm. I mean, as Seyfedin told me, like, you know, today, like if we want to give $30 billion to Brazil for some reason, like as long as the Congress approves of it, we send the money to these, uh, you know, these institutions and they disperse it. Um, it doesn't come from anywhere, right? It's like comes from some paperwork, right? But in a Bitcoin standard, it would be like, yeah, you and whose Bitcoins are going to send $30 billion to Brazil. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like it, it does sort of, it may change. It's well, possible. it reminds me of what you said before about war bonds. The exactly. reason war bonds went is because people wouldn't want to yeah, fund it. Yeah, in a Bitcoin it. standard, it's like yeah. going to be a lot more difficult to finance forever wars. And it'll be a lot more difficult to finance the, the bank and the fund. I, I also think there's something interesting about 
maybe a world where everybody's on the same currency, because currently the bank and fund exist to prop up, in many yeah. ways, to prop up the dollar system, right? So if you don't have the dollar system anymore, if everybody's using something that no government can manipulate, it's, it's this neutral currency, um, then I don't think they can nearly have the same power. And I don't think the disparities exist in such a, such a way. Like the Cantillon effect we often talk about, like in our own towns and cities and countries, Usually in the West, we're thinking about Wall Street and stuff, right? But there's also a global Cantillon effect that, that yep. we've been discussing basically the whole time yeah. of the people who create the money see the most value and the people who don't create the money get screwed. The global Cantillon effect is the rich countries and the poor countries. And it's, it's a, you know, a tale as old as time, right? So we break the Cantillon effect. I think we may, we may actually see a change, like not only in the labor share of economies where you have the people doing the work getting more of the share, um, which, which has been completely shriveled by IMF and World Bank policy, um, but also globally speaking, like these countries with these incredible riches that we've been talking about, both human and natural, and we haven't even gone into Brazil or much of, much of the African continent, but like but there's such incredible potential in these places. Yeah. Um, and they will be the biggest countries in the world in the future. Nigeria will be the third largest country in the world in, in, you know, by 2060. So these places have so much to offer. And I think in a neutral reserve currency, maybe they can reach their potential. Mm. But I mean, the main point of today's talk is, is we, we should reflect on our history and yeah. what we did and what we've done and how and we, what and, we're doing and what we're doing currently. And maybe it can change, maybe mm. it can't. But I mean, I, this is an important thing for us to, to reflect on. Yeah. Um, wow, lots to think about there. Um, hmm. When people talk about the colonial past of the the, the UK, it's not, a, the it's British, not an it's ancient not, history. It's not, a, it's not a past. It's I mean, a these, yeah. these, the, again, the Indonesian taxpayers still paying off loans from that from from these projects. Yeah. And as you saw from that visual in Argentina, <laughs> the, the Argentines now have thirty one billion dollars that they owe to the IMF. I mean, again, you ever hear of this concept? I, I, we can maybe you know finish out with this. There's this idea of odious debt. Yeah. So odious debt was invented by the U.S. government when we liberated Cuba from the Spanish empire and the Spanish had been basically uh, subjugating the Cubans. So the Americans said, just like a hundred years ago, America said, you, you Cubans, you don't owe the debt that your occupier incurred. That would be unfair. So we called it odious debt. So the whole point of what we've been discussing today is that again, the debt, in, debt takes two. It takes two, it's a dance, right? So the, the borrower was almost always a dictator or some sort of unaccountable corrupt uh, leader. And they borrowed that money, sinking their country into, into misery uh, in a way that was not done with consensus of the people. So the question is, if you live in a country like the DRC, should you be responsible for all the debt incurred by Mobutu? The answer morally is no, absolutely not. Um, the problem is that again, that debt, exists as an asset on a Western bank's balance sheet and they don't want that to go to zero. So the game must go on, you know? As Danny was so saying. So the irony is there's only one yeah. country in the last 20 years that has actually gotten qualification for odious debt. It was Iraq after America invaded Iraq. So Saddam had all these debts. And we said, now that we had our little, you know, colonial possession, we said, no, it, you know, it, this doesn't owe those debts anymore. Was that after they surrounded the Ministry of Oil? It was around all that. All that stuff happened at the same time. Yeah. The point is that we did it in such a way where, like, uh, it was a one-time exception. But like, the reality is, all these poor countries 
owe staggering amounts of debt. I mean, again, Argentina, 31 billion. A lot of that was was borrowed by dictator, military dictators in the 70s and 80s. I mean, the Argentine people should not have to pay that debt. That's insane. They never, they never voted for that ever. Nope. Okay. So the answer is that a lot of the debt of the world, an overwhelming percentage of what 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 our assets on balance sheets is odious, was was created in an unfair contract. And that's got to change. And maybe Bitcoin helps pop that bubble. And I don't think it's going to be pretty. I mean, again, to finish with the heroin addiction, like comparison, it's true. Like these countries are heroin addicts and they're completely addicted to debt. And, and the drug dealers have been selling and selling and selling and convincing them that, they're, they're, that they should just buy more. Don't worry about it. It's going to be very painful, but um, it's way less painful than being an addict forever. Like you have to go to rehab. When's the paper going to be finished? Uh, right before the Ghana conference. Uh, okay. So at the end of November. Okay. Um, so hopefully people will be listening to this like right after Thanksgiving, you know, right before Accra, which is December five, six, seven. And I want it to come out then so that as we go to Accra and gather in, in Africa, in, in Ghana, we can think about these big, big, big issues. Mm. Um, but yeah, so, um, People should learn about the bank and the fund and, and think about their own complicity in this and think about the fact that a lot of the success they've had in life has been subsidized by the deprivation of wages and standards of living of poor people abroad. Yeah, it feels shit. Yeah, it feels pretty... Yeah. It's, not, it's not a good yeah, feeling. it's not at but all. But we should acknowledge it. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely acknowledge it, but it just... Yeah, it feels, feels yeah, shit. Yeah, and look, yeah. maybe Bitcoin doesn't fix this, but... I think there's a chance that it really disrupts it yeah. in a big way. So mm -hmm. thank God for that. And let's keep working on that. Well, thank you for doing this, Alex. Um, and good luck in Ghana. I wish I could go. Um, I'm sure you're gonna have a great time. Uh, next we'll carry time, the torch for you. Thank you. Next time I will be there. Um, uh, I, I hope you appreciate the fact that, as you say, Jeff's booth's name, he wanders through the door. <laughs> this is the magic of what Bitcoin did. Um, you know, any name you say, we would have allowed them to wander through the door. So um, brilliant. Hi, Jeff. Hey. All right. Okay, Alex, thank you so much. Um, I look forward to reading the full article and I'm going to ponder on this a lot. It's, um, yeah. It's heavy stuff. It is heavy. But thank you for giving me the opportunity. Always, man. Always. All right. Thank much you. Love. All right. Thank you for listening to what Bitcoin did. I'm not going to say I hope you enjoyed this because, like I said in the intro, the stuff Alex was explaining this is really quite depressing to see how Western nations, including the one I've lived in, is essentially financially oppressing other nations is, yeah, it's just depressing stuff. It kind of blew my mind. And if you've been listening to the show recently, you've probably already heard me reference this show to a few other people. And it's a show that's really stuck with me. I've not read the entire piece yet. I wanted to make the show before reading it. I wanted Alex to explain it to me. I'm going to be reading it myself this afternoon, but please do go and check it out. It is linked in the show notes. And I do want to hear back from you. Let me know what you think about this. Please do get in touch. As I always tell you, my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com and I will get back to you. Okay, enjoy the rest of your week and I will see you all on Friday.